Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. The Names of God, it's one of my favorite series to study and to teach. And what I love about the names of God is God gives us these names that give us little bits and pieces of his inexhaustible character so we can understand it. And I love that God reveals himself. He reveals his character to us in life circumstances and even at times when we face life struggles. So when we face life struggles, when, when life throws us curveballs that we weren't unexpected, the power of this study is it's going to let us go back and remember the names of God. And these names are going to tell us how God chooses to meet us at these crucial moments. And so I'm excited over these next few weeks. The study that we're looking at this morning is going to go back to one of the first names that was given to God that we find all the way back in the book of Genesis. So if you've got your Bibles, go with me to Genesis chapter 14. If you've got your phones, go to lexcity.info. All the sermon notes are there. And uh, while you're turning there, Tammy and I, uh, we are so grateful and so thankful for the gift as a church he gave us of a sabbatical this summer. And in the next couple days, we're actually going to be heading to our marriage retreat that's going to be at Scott River Lodge here in California. But Tammy and I are having a blast. We took our motorcycle all the way out here to California, and you can see some of the amazing scenery that we've seen over these last couple days. I'm not convinced after 30-some days on the bike together, we may need marriage counseling, so the timing couldn't be better. <laughs> but seriously, we're living the dream, and uh, we are making some great lifelong memories together. And so thank you for this gift. If you think of us this next week, would you just pray for us that during this time of retreat and this marriage time that God would just create in us a heart of renewal, greater connectedness, and just a renewed passion and vision for what God has for us as a couple and for what God has for us as a church family. And we're looking forward to seeing you back on the 31st of this month. Well, the first name of God that we saw that Josh taught us about a couple weeks ago was Elohim. This idea of God the creator. And the start of that, the preface, El, E-L, means this, the strong one. And from that name, strong one, we have two names of God that you might be familiar with. One we studied already was El Shaddai, and the other one is El Elohim. As we jump in this morning, El Shaddai we looked at, we're going to look at that second word that bridges off the mighty one. First part, El, strong one. The second part, what I love is El Yan is to rule or overrule. Do you ever have a situation in your life that you, that you needed God to rule or maybe even overrule the verdict or the outcome in? This is the power of this name. Those times in our life when the verdict has been set, it appears in the area of our finances, in our relationship, in our health, and in our circumstances, and you need God to step in. You need God to have the, the final word. For God to overrule the verdict that seems so set in stone, you need those moments in your life. That is the name El Elyon. I put it this way as we think about what we're going to study today. It's simply this. El Elyon is the most high God who sits above your situation and who has the power to overrule what your circumstances are dictating to you. To study this, we're going to go back to the first time. This name is used 31 times throughout Scripture, but the very first time it's used over and over again is found in the book of Genesis, chapter 14. If you go to the start of that chapter, it opens up with this great war that the first eight verses describe a little bit what's happening. We have four kings 
who are going up against five kings, and the war is about to take place. <clears throat> now, when you think of this idea of the war of, the, of these kings and his kingdom, it actually was kings who were over cities. So what we have is four cities battling against five cities. These five cities, specifically one city in general, had been oppressive, charging too many taxes. So the four cities rallied together to come against these five. And in verse 8, it tells us that two of these five cities were Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you may recognize those names, Sodom and Gomorrah. We learn a little bit more about them later in the book of Genesis. But in the context of chapter 14, why these cities are important is this is where Abram's nephew, Lot, has moved his household and his family, and he's living at this time. So let's pick up our story. Genesis chapter 14, verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and he went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. We pick up the story, and, and Lot is now a, a prisoner of war. He and his family and all of his possessions have been taken by the kings. And one of so, uh, Lot's servants uh, manages to escape, and he runs quickly to tell Abram of the, the impact, the fate of his relatives. So verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went to pursue as far as Dan. I love Abram. Abram's a bad dude. I mean, this dude's a stud. Think about this. He has 318 trained warriors that are in his own household. He's got his own personal army. And so when injustice comes, even though they are outnumbered and outmanned by these other kings, something was stolen from them. And Abram decides to act. Have you ever had something that's been stolen from you by the enemy? I mean, your peace, your physical health, your, your, your mental health, your, your relationships, your, your purpose, your contentment. The enemy has stolen something from you. The great news today is there's good news. And the name of God is where we find that great good news. That God gives a name that says this, that he will overrule when the enemy has taken from you. El Elyon. The God most high, the God who has the power to make what was wrong right, the power to return what was taken. Let's go back to verse 15. And when he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, they defeated them and they pursued him to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot and his possessions and the women and the people. And Abram was blessed by Melchizedek. Go down to verse 18. We find out a little bit who this Melchizedek was. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. There's that word again, L-L-M. And he blessed them and said, blessed by Abram, by God, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The priest Melchizedek comes before Abram, and they worship God. Why? Because he is the God who overrules. A God who had appeared, the verdict had been set. Lot had been taken. All was lost, but God had not spoken the final word yet. The enemy had thought he had won, but El Elyon had yet to speak. 
So they worship God, right? Now, don't miss this in this worship that they have together. Their worship was not only in song. Their worship was not only in words that they acknowledged who God was, but they gave back to God a tenth. They gave back to God a percentage or what we would call a tithe. Why is this so important? Because in their midst of acknowledging that is the God who is almighty that rules all things, they acknowledge that by giving back of the riches that they had received. It's this posturing of our heart that says, God, I acknowledge that all of this comes from you. I I give back to you a a tithe, a tenth of what I have to acknowledge that. I acknowledge the fact that my 318 men were outpowered, outmanned, and yet you went with us to make what right was, was wrong. God, I acknowledge that these spoils, these things I have received are a gift from you. It's the power of the tithe or the giving back. It positions ourselves that way, that the spoils of our life belong to you. The same is true for us, right, if we're honest about it. Our our paycheck, our ability to provide and to create resources, these are all a gift from God. When we give back, we talk about it every week, ways that we give back support to ministries. When we tithe, we're acknowledging this, right, that my very breath, that my physical abilities, that my intelligence, that my giftedness are all a gift from you, God. In our context, it's acknowledgement of the blessing we have to be born in this country or live in this country, to work in this country, to have the freedom to do these things. It simply says, God, I am acknowledging the fact that you are the provider of everything I have. And as an act of worship, as an act of positioning myself and acknowledging tangibly what's true in my heart, that you are the source of all these things I give back to you. And this was certainly Abram's positioning. The power of this, and we're going to see in a moment, the power of positioning ourselves of that kind of dependent is this. If wealth doesn't have a hook into your heart, then you're protected from greed and you're protected from compromising. We're going to see here in a moment that Abram is going to be tempted to compromise some of his values, and it comes to this area of resources even. But because wealth doesn't have a hook in his heart, the temptation has far less impact. So we're going to go back and look at these next few verses. The king of Sodom is now going to come and meet Abram. After Abram has defeated him and taken Lot back, the king comes, and in verse 21, look what the king says. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, listen, return all the people. You can keep all the spoils, just return the people. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, listen, here it is. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, El El Uran, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. King Sodom, here's what he's saying. King, don't act like you have the last word here. Don't act like you are still controlling things that you are in charge. God has spoke, and El Elyon has spoken and ruled, and my trust and my reputation and my security is not found in you, but it's found in the God who went with me and gave me this victory. My reputation rises there. Because this is what we know about God, right? God will share his glory with no man, and no city, and with no king. And when we compromise, and when we give into these things, we steal the glory from God. 
Had Abram compromised at this moment, said, King, yeah, let's work out this deal. What happens? The king gets some glory because he's able to bring the people back. Abram gets some glory because he's able to bring the spoils back to his country. And Abraham says, listen, the glory of God cannot be shared with any man, with any king, or with any city. You want to give God the glory in your life? You want to give God the glory in your relationships? Then just do it God's way, right? Don't compromise. Quit justifying. Quit rationalizing why you find yourself in a position you are right now. I'm just telling you, do it God's way and don't steal God's glory in your relationships, right? You want to honor God in your finances? Then simply do it God's way. Tithe. Give back to him. Be generous. Work with integrity. Uh, find things that are greater than yourselves to support and be a part of because the reality is, listen, we cannot trust any king, any kingdom, any government to meet your financial needs because God will share his glory with nobody. Acknowledge. God, I hold this loosely because you are the provider of all that I have. Abram, think about this moment. We have the bigger picture, right? Because we know what happens the next few chapters in the book of Genesis. Abram at this moment is tempted by a king who rules a city, which if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a city that is about to be burned to the ground, a city that today lies at the bottom of a dead sea, it was such a temporary temptation. But this was a temptation that came to Abram. And what I love about his dependence on God, El Elyon, the God who is most high, is that he understood that the provisions of man are temporary. The, the things that King Sodom offered him seemed pleasing in the moment. But what God offered was eternal, and we see it through history. So friends, when you look at your circumstances, and, and compromise seems like the best answer. It certainly seems like the easier answer. It seems like the instant gratification will come if I'll just share glory in a couple different places. Can I remind you, I love the way Tony Evans says it this way. If all you see is what you see, you have not seen all there is to see. Isn't that great? Let me give it to you again. If all you see is what you see, you have not seen all there is to see. Until El Elyon has spoken the last word, you have not heard the last word. He is the God, the God who overrules, the God who has the final say, the, the final move in that moment. There's a painting in the Louvre in Paris, and it's this painting by an artist, a German artist named Frederick Reich. And he was known for creating these, these beautiful illustrations that had a deeper meaning that you really had to look closer in order to see. Well, it was this painting that, over the years, popularity has, has moved it to really be called Checkmate. You might have heard it by that name. The painting depicts two chess players. One is Satan, we see with the red feather in his hat, arrogant, confident that the win is within his hands. The other chess player on the other side of the board is a young man who looks in despair. And the symbolism of the painting, the chess set on top of a coffin, seems to be implying that they are playing for the very soul of this young man. Well, according to legend, there's probably a lot of fact to this legend, that was one of those days at the Louvre that a group was coming through, and in that group was a grandmaster chess player. He'd come to enjoy all the beautiful artifacts in the museum, the Mona Lisa and all these things. But when he got to this painting, the checkmate, he, he stopped and lingered and began to intently look upon it. And even as the crowd moved on to other exhibits, he stayed there. And as he pondered, he saw something very surprising that most people would have missed. The common interpretation of the painting was simply that, that it was checkmate. 
that all hope was lost, that the soul of the young man could no longer be redeemed. The devil seemed the obvious victor. In fact, he was winning in this moment, but the chess master understood something that many people missed. In reality, the devil was about to lose, and the young man who thought he had lost was about to win because what they had forgotten is there was a king, and the king had the last move. And that move would change the total outcome of the game. Well, the Grand Master, after looking at this, calls over the, the curator of the museum and in great enthusiasm says to him, listen, you either have to change the painting or you have to change the name of the painting because it's not checkmate. He says something actually is going to happen. The who you think is going to win is actually going to be defeated and who you think is already lost is actually going to be the winner. See, you didn't realize this, that the king has one more move. L. El Yan, the God who overrules, the God who has the last word, the God who gives the final verdict still has one more move to go and that move changes everything. The, the children of Israel sitting on the banks of the Red Sea, the, the armies of Egypt coming down upon them were reminded that the king still had one more Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fire and before their feet hit the flames, before their clothes even smell like smoke, the king still had one more move. She was thrown down into the courtyard into the dust of that day and all of her accusers with stones in hand began to lay out allegations against her to take her very life, but the king still had one more the stone is rolled in front of the tomb. And for three days, there's silence. And Satan and the demons cheer and rejoice, for victory was theirs, checkmate was in hand. But the king still had one more move. El, Elyon. So today, where in your life do you need to be reminded that the king has one more move? Where, where have you lost hope? Where have you lost faith? Where have you felt that all has been forgotten? It's in these moments that God says, I want to remind you one more time of who I am. I am El Elyon, the God who overrules. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the promise of that, that you are a God who has the final say. That in your sovereignty, that you see all things and you know all things. And until you have spoken, the last word has not been said. And so... God, today I know there are some who need to hear that. There are some who need the encouragement and the hope that you're not done. For some who have felt the label and the verdict has been condemned upon them, and this is who they always will be with no hope of change or freedom, God, may today you remind them that you are the God who still has one more move. We thank you that we can trust you even in our darkest hour. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.